Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 202. In this episode, we're talking about ethics and AI with Dr. Jeremiah Coogan. Dr. Jeremiah Coogan is assistant professor of New Testament at the Jesuit School of Theology at Santa Clara University, and he's a co-author of Encountering AI, Ethical and Anthropological Investigations, which is a book-length special issue published by the Journal of Moral Theology, which you can check out now at their website. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Reverend Daniel Parham, Dr. Logan Williams, and me. Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So this episode with Dr. Jeremiah Coogan was very interesting, thinking about artificial intelligence and the ethics of our use of it and development of it. And often, as Dr. Coogan will discuss, we tend to think about you know the future of AI and, and the kind of doomsday scenarios that might result from our use of AI. But what Dr. Coogan wants to draw our attention to are the present ways in which we're already deploying and utilizing AI and which AI is already being programmed. And that actually at the heart of our concerns about AI are really human concerns, the way that humans are programming it, the way that humans are using it, and the way that humans might use it for particular ends and with particular uh, uh, values in mind, specifically the values of a select group of people. These are some of the issues that uh, we're going to discuss with Dr. Coogan today. And I just found it all to be very fascinating, especially as we think about you know, chat GPT and how this relates to education, which of course is a concern uh, for all of us here. Amber, Daniel, Logan, what were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Dr. Coogan? I really liked how he framed the conversation as not being something that began with the rise of AI as we've seen it recently, um, but that it's something that simply amplifies problems, issues, conflicts, questions that humans and have had for a very long time and even specific questions about justice and equality that we are struggling with uh, in our society today. I really liked how Jeremiah talked about in the document, they emphasized the importance of human encounter and um, directly engaging with the people who are being affected and whose lives are being transformed by AI often without their knowledge. Uh, so I, I think that was a, a helpful kind of positive aspect of the document um, and a kind of a, a way forward for how to use these tools in ways that are ethical. It was enlightening to talk to Dr. Coogan, I think, especially coming from the perspective of education and how um, complicated it is to use the tools of AI uh, that actually, I think, reduces the learning capacity that that others can actually engage in because uh, the process of investigation is eliminated. So I think it was good good to have that conversation around around those elements of um, the diminishment of that. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. You can also follow us on X, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Jeremiah Coogan. 
Well, Dr. Coogan, it's wonderful to have you back on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So we're very interested in this new book-length special issue project that you've just completed for the Journal of Moral Theology, Encountering AI. Can you tell us a little bit about what this project is and kind of uh, your the nature of your involvement with it? Sure, yeah. So the project is called Encountering AI, Ethical and Anthropological Investigations. And it is a massively co-authored project that emerges out of the AI research group from the Vatican Center for Digital Culture. I'm in fact not Catholic. I work at a Catholic institution, and this is a project that brings together a number of Catholic theologians, ethicists, but also folks thinking about technology, and then people like me who are interested in the longer history of Christian thinking about technology and about the formation of knowledge. It's an ecumenical project, but broadly framed in terms of Catholic social teaching and especially the magisterial corpus of Pope Francis. The project is an attempt to think through some of the ways that AI as both a set of technologies and as a social phenomenon, that is, as a way that we as a society are thinking about the nature of technology and about the ways in which technologies might impact the future of human society. Uh, it's an attempt to think through those using the tools of Catholic social teaching, but also to do so in a way that is broadly accessible across different Christian confessions, so not narrowly inside the confines of the Catholic theological sphere, but as a way of inviting ongoing theological conversation. This is something that's new for me. It is a massively, massively uh, multi-authored project. It's a single project with 20 contributors, uh, a lot of drafting by individuals or teams of smaller sections of this book-length project, and then a lot of revising and, and editing by different members of the team. So the result of this is that this is a project that is a kind of consensus document. There are a lot of points of disagreement and ongoing conversation between different members of the team. And I would say that the resultant document doesn't perfectly reflect what any of us thinks, but it is, you know, broadly a consensus document and also just a really interesting process of writing. I've never been part of something with more than a couple of co-authors until now. And this is a massively co-authored project, which is, I know, more typical in the natural sciences and then some areas of ethics as well. Whereas in biblical studies and the history of early Christianity, where I tend to live, occasional co-authoring with one or maybe two co-authors is more the norm. But this kind of massively co-authored project is just unheard of. So Jeremiah, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, what for you, as one of the 20 or so co-authors, um, what was your biggest takeaway from your experience uh, and uh, kind of finalization of the project? Yeah. So my sort of big thesis coming out of working on this project is that the ethical and social challenges posed by AI are really basically not about AI. That is to say, in the near term, not talking about sort of long-term ideas about AIs developing consciousness or becoming sentient or trying to annihilate humans, but in the near term, the kinds of ethical and social challenges posed by AI are only secondarily about AI. AI is a very powerful tool that lets people do things, but the problems of AI are really about broader issues of political and technological power, economic inequality, and I'd suggest the frequent value in our societies to the, the frequent failure in our societies to value the labor, the intelligence, and the agency of people and of communities. So I, I think that 
at one level, this is really almost not a conversation about AI, except insofar as AI is where the rubber meets the road. So I guess this contrasts with, for example, the concept of alignment prior to Agi, right? Which is for those who are not uh, uh, big geeks, uh, the process, the problem of alignment is basically trying to get uh, AI aligned with what humans want to do and also human moral values. Um, and there's a big fear in the AI, you know, ethics community that if we don't align AI with human values ahead of time, eventually we're going to create something that is so powerful and so smart uh, and that it's going to kind of become its own thing. And if we don't, if we haven't, you know, sufficiently aligned AI with our values prior to that, then it will it will take off and become this kind of, you know, runaway train, basically, that then controls our our, our lives. And we can't we don't know how to shut it off uh, because it's too smart and it can evade us and stuff like this, whatever. Um, you're saying that uh, actually the problem comes down to like humans at the end, not uh, what humans are putting into it or the fact that it's going to become its own kind of like evil runaway monster. Basically, at the end of the day, you're saying your takeaway is that, you know, humans are the people pressing the buttons and putting the inputs in. And the issue is really like how people use it. So is that so like, was there a lot of discussion of like Agi in your in your co-authors or among your co-authors? And what were the kind of perspectives? Were there some people that were like, oh, yeah, this is kind of going to become this like beast uh, and we should all be afraid of it. And what what in the documents did you end up kind of landing somewhere in the document about that? Did you just kind of like you know? Yeah, yeah. So so for clarification, AGI or artificial general intelligence (AGI) is the idea of the sentient and conscious form of AI that sort of has all of the capacities for decision making and creativity that we normally attribute to humans, and maybe might exceed those capacities for creativity and managing information and making decisions and seeing potential outcomes. That's what AGI is. This is what people are worried about when they're worried about something that will take on consciousness and, you know, wipe out humans. As opposed to that, we have what is generally classed as artificial narrow intelligence, ANI, which is the wide range of tools that actually currently are being developed. So AGI does not exist. It could potentially exist, but it doesn't. ANI does exist and it's being used by people to do stuff. And so certainly as part of this set of conversations, there were conversations about AGI and the potentials of AGI. But our worry as a group and the focus of this document is the ways in which some of the sort of technological optimism or panic button mode of talking about AGI and the future possible dangers of consciousness, emergent sentience and independence of AI actually can obscure and occlude the very present ethical and moral issues in how people currently are using AI tools to do stuff. And we are not ignoring that other set of issues. We also want to make sure that we don't forget about the present ways that AI is being used by real humans to affect real humans and the distortions of human knowledge, human society, human agency that are created with how AI technologies are being used now and in the immediate future. So it, I don't think this is an either or, but we're discerning that some of the sort of panicked cries of um, future AGI 
sentience, consciousness, et cetera, actually serve as sort of marketing for the enormous power of contemporary available, saleable technologies, and also can sort of serve as a way to defer moral reckoning with the ways that currently ANI systems are used. Yeah, there's a quote by uh, Yuval Noah Harari that I like about how, you know, we shouldn't be so afraid of the Terminator scenario, you know, that the the AI is going to turn on us, but actually we should be 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 concerned that they're going to do exactly what we tell them to. Yeah. Well, and this is this is the sort of other alignment problem. Uh, Logan rightly brought up the sort of big conversation in AI ethics and also just AI technology about how do you train an AI system to aim to do the things that the people in charge of it want it to aim to do. But to that, we would pose a different question. Which people are telling the AI system what to do? And for whose benefit are AI systems being aligned? One of the challenges of AI as a sort of culturally imagined phenomenon is that we tend to imagine AI technologies as if they are objective arbiters of information. You feed them data, and then they produce the maximalizing good outcome, to which we must ask, for whom? And who decides what the best outcome is? The problem of sort of anonymizing decision-making in how AI technologies work is a huge moral problem, especially when we think about who actually controls the AI technologies that are available and likely to be available and used in the relatively near future. So that's the, I think that's the more pressing alignment problem. Although I recognize that the first alignment problem, the one that Logan talked about, is a true engineering problem. How do you get the system to do what you want it to do? But to your point, um, I, I think this is not the only problem. The bigger problem is who's using the system. Uh, just off the top of your head, I mean, if you, I assume you discussed this, like what are some of the really concerning ways that AI systems are being used to harm people? Yeah, so great examples are in economic modeling about who, especially in sort of the international development space, who should receive financial assistance, where should economic aid be sent, these sorts of questions, which depending on how you feed data into the system, might privilege not human good and human needs, but who's most likely to pay off the loan, which is not necessarily the way we want to do it. Or they can maximize existing inequalities. The much discussed example that is currently no longer being deployed, but that has been deployed, is the use of AI for sentencing models, criminal sentencing models, which take existing human decisions about what kinds of people should be sentenced for various durations, also about what kinds of offenses should be. Um, punished more or less harshly. And the unsurprising result is that when you feed a bunch of past history of criminal sentencing into such a model, it replicates the injustices and biases and prejudices of the human societies who've already been doing criminal sentencing, not least in ways that are explicitly gendered and racialized, only due to attentive people noticing this was happening and recognizing the inequities that were not only being reproduced, but in fact amplified by this kind of system. Um, that it's now now not something that is being practiced, but this has been practiced in the last few years. Um, and so these kinds of systems that are fed a lot of data and thus are notionally objective 
aren't necessarily objective. They just serve the aims of the people who put them to work and sometimes amplify the injustices that already exist. Speaking along those lines around inequity and ethics, uh, do you envision, uh, let me reframe that, uh, based upon what you just shared in regards to kind of the inequities that can be perpetuated uh, in regards to uh, AI, uh, what are you currently seeing as kind of the bodies of people who are drawing near to this this venture? And because as we know, history has a way of repeating itself, regardless of what what society we're in. And so are, are we seeing certain certain populations of individuals, when I think about power, wealth, socioeconomic status, majority of culture, are we seeing a, a convergence of those same uh, errors that create, create the ethical dilemmas that are involved with this as we're talking about humanity, right? Humanity is creating the systems, not the systems creating themselves. So wh what are you seeing when it comes to that? And, and how does that present some of the great ethical dilemma that that's kind of like the veil behind the curtain uh, moment? Yeah. Well, and so we like talking about humans making tools, but in fact, it's not just, you know, all humans making these tools. It's a particular subset of humans making, controlling, deploying these tools. They're deployed and manufactured mostly by folks located not far from where I am in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area. And it's not as though this is a representation of all of human agency, all of human decision-making. It's particular sets of humans. And this is partly because of the economies of scale that are required to make these kinds of models work. Effective AI systems, ones that generate the kinds of capacities that we've been seeing over the last year, year and a half with large language models and other kinds of AI tools, require enormous economies of scale in terms of the data fed in and the processing power available. This is sort of inescapably, if not monopolistic, at least oligarchic. You aren't going to have many players in that space. This is not something that in its current technological and economic configurations is in any sense democratized, where most human communities or societies around the world have any say in how these tools are put to work or by whom. The stakeholders really are people in Silicon Valley and people who make money off of people in Silicon Valley. And so that means that on the whole, these technologies skew to the perspectives of well-educated, wealthy, often not exclusively, but often white folks in the Bay Area and people who those folks understand as sort of sharing an economic and technological constituency. And I think it's it's worth noting that many people involved in AI work are probably on the politically left end of the spectrum and would think of themselves as embracing various claims around social justice and racial racial equity and things like that. And yet the the reality is that the stakeholders actually involved in the process are overwhelmingly rich white folks in the Bay Area. And that regardless of where people think of their politics as lying, the actual communities creating these tools don't reflect that. One of the things that you mentioned at the very beginning was that this situation is not one where we're trying to simply align the tools with the humans. 
but it's really a human problem. And this is just presenting that human problem in new ways or human problems in new ways. Um, And I think that's absolutely right. Or that strikes me as right. But I'm wondering if there's any sense in which it also works the other way. So by kind of radically restructuring our landscape and introducing new possibilities, how has A&I altered maybe our moral reasoning, our values, certain values that are brought into the foreground, others that are brought in the background, some things that maybe we were concerned about before that are no longer important. I I mean, I'm thinking most obviously like um, plagiarism and cheating (laughs) just doesn't seem to be like a a vice in the same way that it was prior to chat GPT. So yeah, do you think it works at all the other way? And if so, how? I think that's right. I, I mean, and I think that's sort of inescapably right, that technologies are used by people in ways that reflect the priorities and values of the people who put those technologies to work, but also the technologies available and the opportunities for action then shape how people think about the world that they live in. I do think that the use of A&I technologies really reflects what in Catholic social teaching has been called the technocratic paradigm, uh, which as... But Francis writes in Laudato Si, uh, is about how humanity has taken up technology according to, I quote, an undifferentiated and one-dimensional paradigm, which exalts the concept of the subject who uses logical and rational procedures to progressively approach and control the external object. So the idea that progress is about stronger technological tools, that having better technologies for doing stuff is automatically obviously better. But moreover, I think that it already reflects the idea that more information, that is more just raw data is always better. And so one of the problems with AI that I think AI has amplified, to go to your point, one of the problems that AI has amplified is the idea that if you just have more information, then your results will be better. That you don't actually have to have discernment or wisdom or even coherent methodologies or decision-making processes, you just need lots of data. And more data is better. If you feed enough data, it will sort of have order and logic and reason emerge out of it. I think this is already latent in many of the ways that Western technocratic societies have understood information and knowledge already. And yet this has been amplified enormously by the turn to AI, where now we think that really you just need to collect all the data, feed it into the machine, and truth, goodness, objectivity, et cetera, will emerge. That's not true. And anyone who's actually spent time training how AI systems work can tell you that because untrained AI systems, to which you fed enormous amounts of data, are explicitly racist and misogynist. This is, this is for example, something that people who train LLMs have learned, large language models. They've learned that if you just feed an internet's worth of data to a large language model, it is just as terrible as the worst corners of the internet. Surprise, surprise. No, no, exactly. None of us <laughs> You feed it all the 4chan and you end up getting this hor- horrific stuff coming out? Who could have guessed? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, at one level, there is the sort of garbage in, garbage out problem. But we still sort of are beguiled by the idea that more is better, more more progress, whatever we mean by progress, is automatically better, more technological power is better. But also that more information somehow equals 
more knowledge or more truth. And I think that second point is something that we are really tempted into by the ways that large language models work in particular. I should say also there are lots of ways that um, we're seeing AI deployed that aren't about large language models, some of which are also worrying, um, whether that's economic modeling or uh, healthcare predictive modeling that decides who should get healthcare and who should have affordable healthcare premiums and who shouldn't, those sorts of things, which aren't really a large language model based, and which have some of the same problems where they ramify existing human problems. But I think large language models are the way in which we most obviously are seeing ideas about how AI works shape human societies and human understandings of what technology is and should do. But I wonder, uh, yeah, I wonder if there's a, yeah, when uh, um, you can go back to look at people like um, Nick Bostrom and Yvonne Harari or whatever, who, who, who maybe talk about um, in different ways um, this problem and see what their language is in terms of if they're specific about whose values um, they want to input into, into AI would be an interesting question. No, and, and to go to your point, I mean, you mentioned Nick Bostrom. I think one of the challenges here is that some number of the people who are developing AI technologies are fundamentally ambivalent about the injustices or moral harms that might result from the near-term deployment of AI technologies, precisely because they're interested in what's often called long-termism or sort of a very long game, sort of the idea of- I was literally just about to say Will McCaskill. <laughs> yeah. no, exactly, yes. You, you, might, you might do better explaining long-termism than I, but people who are so interested in the very, 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 you know, billion and multi-billion year history of human consciousness um, beyond the planet Earth, often beyond actual physical human bodies at all, People who are so interested in maximizing the happiness or good of potential future humans, um, understood often in ways that no longer involve human embodiment at all, to such an extent that they find the present suffering of humans fundamentally irrelevant. This is not, I, I should say carefully, this is not true of everyone in Silicon Valley. It's certainly not true of everyone involved in making or using AI technologies, but it is one dominant ideology which makes all of the ethical questions about how AI technologies now are used to shape human poverty and starvation or criminal justice and injustice or to determine how and to switch um, examples a little bit to think about sort of how technologies shape how current humans learn or don't learn in educational contexts. All of these questions are basically moot if you've adopted a form of the technocratic paradigm that is so interested in a very, 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 very long game that present humans basically don't matter at all. They're just a drop in the bucket that can be safely disregarded in favor of the potential human flourishing of our electronic alter egos in 3 billion years. Again, that's not everybody, but it is a problem. And it's a problem that distracts from even asking the questions we've been asking today. Well, even I, I was going to say, I, I, was, I was going to use the, the phrase drop in the bucket because I'm pretty sure Will McCaskill uses that exact phrase. Yes, indeed. Uh, in, in his book, Long Termism, to talk about like some pretty horrific things that could happen in the present. Um, but I even think, I mean, even more than that, according to a kind of long termist perspective, it's not even that the, you know, the human suffering now is moot. It's that you are morally obligated to disregard it. 
if, yes. if it uh, is done in the service of um, something, some good that maybe possibly uh, could happen, you know, 10,000 years from now, which is, which is, which is a real big gamble, I might say, uh, in yeah. order to have a level of confidence to be willing to inflict suffering on people now, or to consider it a drop in the bucket, of course. Um, but uh, I guess the, um, well, oh, indeed, I, can I, I interrupt I you there? The like, it's, it's, Sorry, it, no, no, it's, it's not only that um, human suffering right now can be, ought to be disregarded, but if one can oh, maximize yeah. one's sense of future human happiness flourishing in this sort of post-human cloud, if one can maximize that future, one is not only morally um, justified, but one is morally obligated in this framework to maximize human sufferings now that serve that, en- that future much greater end. This is a strong utilitarianism. Yeah. I guess um, this is a similar example of like the the way ways in which people, or that's kind of like a very extreme example of ways in which people might distract themselves or even justify uh, unethical uses of technology in the present. Right. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. So one of the, one of the framing concepts of this project that I'm a co-author on is the language of encounter. One of the suggestions in recent Catholic social teaching more broadly is that ethical decision-making and human flourishing requires encounter with the other, not mediated through technologies or through, not just mediated through technologies, digital or otherwise, but the actual encounter of humans and communities. This, of course, ties into a broader Catholic social teaching principle of subsidiarity, the idea that institutions and technologies should be developed and used in the context of the people who are affected by them and not just you know, from on high or from far away by someone else. But it also ties into an idea of human flourishing that depends fundamentally on the interaction of humans in community. And so I would suggest that the sort of reflex of this fundamental problem with how AI technologies are often being used and deployed is that their economies of scale, the dominance of a handful of companies and technological platforms is almost inescapably antithetical to any realized sense of subsidiarity or solidarity or localized encounter between real humans and other real humans. uh, The technological emphasis on centralization and on progress here is constructed in a way that is antithetical to this model of human flourishing. I'm not sure that every AI technology would have to be constructed that way. I don't, this, so uh, this isn't per se a verdict against all AI technologies as such, but I do think that all of the forms of AI that we currently have available to us tend in this direction toward mo- monopolistic centralization, toward separation from the people and communities who they impact, and toward the centralizing of political and technological power as opposed to any sense of real subsidiarity and solidarity. So I really like how you're talking about the move towards more particular and localized encounter and that we're seeing the importance of that in this kind of uh, rise of A&I. And I think this goes back to, I, I think it's absolutely right. And it goes back to the technocratic paradigm that just presupposes universal objective neutrality and the centralization of information because of that universal objective neutrality. And so it's it's the problem of the one and the many, like you lose the particular um, in the supposed universal, but I think as you're yeah. pointing out, 
that universal actually just turns out to be one particular that is absolutized or that is monopolized. Right, um, right. I was, this was making me think about a conversation that I had with a friend of mine who works for Gallup, or sorry, mm -hmm. they used to work for Gallup. And she was talking about how they really struggled to give uh, surveys on a global scale about human flourishing, which was the project she was working on. And that is because each distinct culture or community and even communities within those communities, there are just different value sets and different ways that things hang together. And this doesn't mean that morality is all relative. It just means that different, there's just different grammars and different ways of thinking. And so they would formulate a question like, do you have hope for your future? Um, that would make a lot of sense in an American context, and then they would send it to like Japan, and it would make no sense at all, um, which is not to say that they, they don't have a concept of hope for the future, but it's just that it's, it's articulated in a different way, and, and her point was that we tend to just assume that these, what are really Western framings of values, um, are just objective and universal. And so I'm wondering if what you guys have identified also is just on this global scale that really what's going to happen is kind of a, a Western presumption of neutrality that's just imposed to the point where the particular is kind of obliterated. Yes, I think that's right. And I think that one of the challenges is that to actually think through how AI might be used positively in manifold contexts requires for those people in those different contexts to have some say in how AI technologies are developed and deployed in their context, which is currently not really the case. And so imagining a more positive future here is really sort of speculating into the void until there's an active process of developing and deploying these technologies in conversation with the many different people and communities who they are going to impact. Um, the question about sort of what is the positive vision here is at some level undeveloped because we don't know what the positive vision is until we actually let this be part of a shared conversation. And that currently hasn't yet happened. So this isn't to reject all possibilities for the productive and just use of AI, but it is to put a massive asterisk or question mark on all the forms of AI that currently exist because they so far don't really have that framework of investment in the human flourishing of the many different human communities around the world. But would you say that that is actually the kind of value that we see coming from the people who are developing it? I mean, I, I think it's actually not. I think there's a whole nother set of values that is driving this. Yes, no, no, I agree with you on that. I agree with you on that. But I, if, if I'm asked to imagine the sort of a potential positive outcome here, it requires rethinking how AI technologies are developed and deployed. I don't think, I don't see any great reason for optimism among the people who are currently developing and deploying these technologies, that that is a central investment to what they're doing. But I think that we could imagine an alternate future of AI, whether that and I think it's I think it's ethically valuable to try to imagine how we might reach that, even if that isn't exactly a cause for optimism given the current political and technological configurations around AI technologies. 
Right. And I think the particular challenge of that is the technocratic society is so driven by just technology, 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 progress, progress, yeah. progress, yes. that they're not used to having the this drive for progress be curved by any other value except itself. And so there's kind of a, a lack of moral imagination right now that yes, says yes. Like, maybe you should actually not do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, th I think that is part of the problem. I think maybe the best way to say this is sometimes the best way to use AI is not for something. And no one wants to hear, no, that's not, just put that away, don't use it. Um, but I mean, an example that I've used in conversation with students is, you know, my, my woodworking toolbox. There are lots of tools in there, some of which are not actually suitable to the task. If I am trying to make a table, I don't really need the wrench I use when I change the oil in my car. And I can try to use it, but is it actually the right tool for the job? No. And trying to make a better wrench for removing the oil, the oil pan, is just, it's, it's not relevant to the task at hand. And in the same way, I think that part of the problem of the technocratic paradigm is not only thinking that more progress is always better, but also thinking that any tool should be omnifunctional or should sort of be immediately deployable and deployed to every possible context. Um, especially in the context of education, I have been thinking that I really don't want my students using ChatGPT in the classroom in any form, not because it couldn't do some tasks, but because it's actually short-circuiting what I'm trying to do in my classroom. And yet the problem is that progress beguiles us into thinking that everything that is progress is therefore good. Yeah, that point about uh, how, you know, sometimes the best use of AI is just not to use it and in your woodworking example. I love I love thinking about that saying, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a yeah. nail. And and right. so it's it's not just like, you know, what's the right tool for the job? And sometimes the hammer is not the right one, but specifically armed with like AI or this kind of technocratic paradigm or whatever, everything looks like something to upgrade to 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 find further progress on to to optimize to whatever and it's just this kind of um it's yeah it's telos is like the means right it's just unending progression you know uh there yeah. actually is no goal it's just an unending pursuit of something it's like what thoreau said in in walden you know we're, we're getting uh improved means to an un, unimproved end or whatever you know this idea that it's just it's just progress it's nothing else well, and this is part of why there's a convenience in the sort of ideology or even theology that more data is always better because you don't need to direct it. The theory that if you just feed it enough data, that it will emergently become better, not only in a technological sense, but in a moral or human flourishing sense, obviates any need for humans to exercise moral judgment. You just feed it more and it will become better. It will become good. Obviously, technologists are thinking about this problem. The alignment problem is the real note of skepticism that this is quite so tidy and obvious. And yet also at some level, there is the assumption that if you just feed it more data the right way, the thing that will emerge will be good, good for humans, good for whatever ends we should be caring about. When we think about A&I, particularly, I think along the lines of you're talking about in education, and many of us are either Lord fans of the educational experience or in endeavoring in it at the moment, uh, when I think about the demise of critical thinking, 
particularly like honing in the brain trust to select few uh, and then disseminating that. I think about um, even even some of our conversations at, at the institutional level in higher ed where I work uh, about the Wikipedia effect. And I remember when I was younger and how Wikipedia became the thing that uh, everyone uh, believed would be the demise of academic integrity. But at the same time, even though it wasn't the demise of academic integrity, I think most of us can admit that it lessened our ability to think critically on how to assess and to analyze and to investigate uh, it's just a click away, and we believe that what we see is validating. And so for for this particular realm, uh, which is even more heightened than what we could have imagined, what do you see as both the, the benefit towards our cognitive critical thinking and then the shadow side that, that comes with that, uh, especially when a select few get to decide how we will envision technology thinking critically for us. Yeah. Thank you. That's a really good and tricky set of questions. Um, on the sort of second half of it, on the human response to the, the challenges here, I, I think that the way forward inevitably has to be back to that theme of encounter, actually bringing people together to think together. Um, if, if the goal of critical thinking or academic writing is to produce a thing that will be graded, then the alignment problem, as it were, is that students' goal is not to think well about something. It is to produce the thing that will maximize the grade they want. Um, and I, I recognize as well that many students are themselves disappointed by the ways that they feel like these tools are short-circuiting their learning and that they are worried about the ways that large language models are replacing the conversations they want to have. So I don't actually want to blame students here. But if our teaching is fundamentally oriented toward grading students at getting right or right sounding answers, as opposed to about having conversations in community, then we've sort of built in a vulnerability for things that will create facsimiles of human thought already. Whereas if we've built our pedagogy around actually thinking together in conversation, then a large language model is never really going to be able to supplement or replace what we do in conversation anyway. And I think that this is, again, back to that bigger thesis. This is a larger problem with education, higher education, and other levels of education. If we've already replaced thinking in community with credentialing, at least often in many circumstances, then we've built in a vulnerability to another kind of not thinking and just credentialing. But if we put in the hard work, which will always be imperfect, to think together as the fundamental paradigm of what education means, this achieves that larger goal of thinking well and critically about the world we live in, but also it really deprives ChatGPT of its power to disrupt the classroom if actually making an essay that you didn't write won't really get you out of anything, then it no longer has that power. And I think what's really interesting about this along the lines of positive outcomes 
is it has, especially in the education realm, really, really, really caused us to rethink what even is education. Yeah. And so we're having questions about really philosophical questions um, about epistemology and all, all yes. these sorts of things that I don't think it, by and large people really saw, or it was just a little bit more transparent um, and they weren't thematized in, in the way that they are now. And so sitting, even hearing colleagues talking about workshops just to figure out how to restructure teaching and rethink about goals for education uh, it is quite amazing in, in light of all of this. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, one of the challenges that is that insofar as for many institutions, there's already been a fundamental devaluing of the humanities, those institutions may not really care about the kinds of rethinking that we're talking about. And that's a, again, that's a larger societal problem that isn't really AI's fault, even if AI amplifies some of its effects. But I think for those of us who are fortunate enough to be institutions where there is the time and space and institutional investment into thinking about actually educating people and not just giving them degrees. I think that this is a really valuable thing. And I hope, not with complete optimism, but I hope that this will actually be really good for higher education. Uh, Jeremiah, you mentioned that, you know, because we're not really sure where all this AI stuff will go, the, the document doesn't have a kind of specific, you know, positive vision in the sense of like, here's what is what needs to happen or whatever. But I'm sure there are, you know, recommendations. You mentioned one about the kind of thematized theme of encounter and the mm -hmm. emphasis on kind of the importance of encounter um, in thinking through, you know, relationships, how we use technology, whatever. What are some of the other things, um, you know, positive recommendations there are for how to kind of guide us ethically as we continue in technological prowess and continue to use these uh, ANI tools? Yeah, no, thank you. That's a that's a helpful way of framing it. Yeah, so insofar as we don't know how AI will develop, it seemed to us both impossible and perhaps also just unhelpful to try to offer a programmatic vision for what specific ways AI can be put to work. But as, as we already talked about, one key point is the idea of encounter and the idea of engaging the communities who are actually being affected, letting people be stakeholders in how technologies are used to impact their lives, which again, I should say is a bigger problem that's not just an AI problem. But so that's one, that theme of encounter and again, going back to the Catholic social teaching language of subsidiary is one crucial point. Another piece that dovetails with this quite nicely is transparency. There's a lot we don't know about how AI technologies will develop, but there's also a lot hiding in the fact that people don't always know when AI tools are being used in ways that shape their lives. And a more specific challenge here is both at the governmental level, but then also at the institutional level of whether it's educational institutions or the World Bank or your insurance company or indeed the companies that create these AI tools of various sorts. Um, being transparent about what they are using AI tools for and how and why, because the 
efficiencies promised by AI technologies are real. Oftentimes, they are ways of doing certain kinds of tasks more efficiently. The challenge, of course, is what is the cost of those efficiencies? To whom is there a cost from those efficiencies? And as a human society, we need to be able to grapple with the kinds of uses and the kinds of costs entailed from those uses. So our other sort of central recommendation is about transparency, about being honest about how and by whom and for what purposes these kinds of technologies are being deployed. Because without that kind of transparency, it's very hard to assess what kinds of impacts on human life these technologies have, and again, who it's benefiting and why. Well, Dr. Coogan, I think that's a great place for us to end this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. And we hope everyone checks out this uh, special issue of the Journal of Moral Theology. Thank you, friends. That was really fun. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me on. Um, yeah. And I look forward to how, how these conversations will continue to develop uh, going forward. Thank you.